everyone. Welcome to the Bad Vibes Club podcast. I'm back with a conversation with the writer Lars Eyer. Lars is a bit of a hero of mine. He's written five books of fiction. The three books in the Spurious trilogy, which were auto-fictional accounts of the trials and tribulations of two academic philosophers. His last book, Wittgenstein Jr., about a group of students at Cambridge and a new tutor that they affectionately nickname Wittgenstein Jr. And his new book, Nietzsche and the Burbs, about a group of teenagers in the last year of school who take a new student under their wing, giving him the nickname of Nietzsche. His books are comic, poignant and full of ideas. In this podcast, we talk about Nietzsche and the Burbs, his new book, which is set in Woking and where Lars grew up. We also talk about his ideas for his next book, which will be set in Manchester, where Lars studied. We talk about method. We talk about Lars's early mornings and the music he listens to as he writes. And Lars reveals the tremendous amount of words he actually puts down on paper before he edits them down to make the stories that are finally published. We also talk about Hello Magazine, the pleasures of drinking in Poland and Thomas Bernhard. And for anyone who wants to know the name of the Agamben book that comes up in conversation later, I googled it and I think it is called The Time That Remains. So I strongly advise that you buy and read Lars's entire back catalogue, Nietzsche and the Burbs, Wittgenstein Jr. and the three books in the Spurious trilogy. At some point in this interview, Lars claims to have a misanthropic streak, but I thoroughly enjoyed his company and I hope you do too. You're the first um, writer I've had on the podcast. Okay, yeah. So as I mentioned just before we started, mm. I'm quite interested in method. But, yeah, sure. But for contemporary artists, that normally mm. involves talking about ideas, sometimes mm. philosophy, sometimes theory. But for you as a writer, you, you're kind of mired in that theory. And mm. and how do you separate the content from the method and the your work as a philosopher from that of, as a writer of fiction? And Well, the important thing is to achieve a kind of lightness with respect to the material. There's this wonderful story, which I'll retell now. It's a, there's, a, there's a poet. I'm not sure where this poet lived or what it was he did exactly, but he's called Abu Nawas. And Abu Nawas went to the great chief poet of his, of his country. And he said to the great chief poet, you know, I'd like to write poetry in the grand style. And the great chief poet said to him, okay, off you go, Abu Nawas, and you can, you can learn about the various verse forms, you can begin to compose, off you go. So off he went. Off, off went Abu Nawas to uh, practice these various verse forms and learn about new verse forms. And he came back to the grand poet and he said to the grand poet, right, I've learned, I've learned all these things now. I've learned the, the thousand verse forms. I've practiced these things for a number of years. Have I now got permission to compose poetry? And the great chief poet said, now you have to go back and you've got to forget every single thing you've learned. And Abu Nawas went off, it took him several more years to forget everything, and he came back to the chief poet and said, I've forgotten everything. I learnt it, and now I've forgotten it. So when he came back to the chief poet, he asked, can I now compose poetry? And the chief poet said, yes, now you can write. So the point here is that you have to forget what you know, forget what you've learnt. Now I'm someone who um, began as an academic philosopher. I was an academic philosopher for about 20 years and I read a lot of academic philosophy and non-academic philosophy. I taught this stuff and spent many years trying to ponder the works of various philosophers, trying to work out what was going on in the, in, in the, in the works of those philosophers. But what was crucial when it came to writing fiction was that I learned how to forget all that heaviness, everything I'd learned. I, learned, I, I, needed, to, I, I needed to forget everything that had weighed me down. Uh, I needed to become free of that burden in order to write fiction. 
And that's been my method, really. At the heart of my method is a quest for lightness. And the idea behind lightness is you leave that heavy stuff behind. You leave it behind and you try and break open a new path. Because that's what method means, it means path. It means opening some new path. And this path is something I wanted to be fundamentally light. I wanted to feel unburdened. I was wondering, I had lots of different questions about Nietzsche and the Burbs, and a lot of them end up being about adolescence. Why did it seem so appropriate to write about Nietzsche's philosophy, well, not write about Nietzsche's philosophy, but to kind of feature Nietzsche's philosophy or, or aspects of it, particularly nihilism, within the milieu of adolescence? Adolescents do not, do not have a strong stake in the world as it currently exists. They're in between childhood and adulthood. As children, they felt secure and comforted by the presence of their parents in a context of society which was, you know, for them, unquestioned. But once you become an adolescent, once you become a teenager, you begin to question. That questioning dies down once you reach adulthood. Once you have a job, once you have a mortgage, once you have relationships of various kinds, then that questioning is no longer as intense, it's no longer as focused. So that's what adolescence is for me, is that period in life when you're not invested strongly in the adult world and you're, you've been deprived of the security of the world you knew as a child. As an adolescent, you can question, you can ask yourself about the state of the world and you can ask yourself how it might be changed. What was your relationship to Nietzsche? When did you start first read his philosophy? Was that as an adolescent for you that it, you first came across it? I think you stumble across Nietzsche as an adolescent. Many people do. I remember stumbling across this stuff. Yeah. And the problem with Nietzsche is it's so readable, you gulp it down. You gulp it down, you think you understand it. You think you can grasp it. The point about Nietzsche is, yes, you can read it in that way. You can consume Nietzsche. But that doesn't mean you've actually read Nietzsche or engaged with his work seriously. There's only when you come to it after um, some years reading other things, reading in, in history of philosophy, reading about the history of religion and the sciences, reading in general, after you come to Nietzsche, after you come gone through that process and you come to Nietzsche, it's a very different experience. Mm -hmm. There you can understand exactly what Nietzsche's striking against, what he's arguing against. You understand why he's such a radical. And that's the thing for Nietzsche for me then, is that we, we consume him too easily. Nietzsche should be something difficult to read, something we take time over. And that's what I think I came to after several years of studying philosophy. I came to Nietzsche as someone who could understand better, I think, uh, what he was arguing against, what he was struggling against. Thinking about method, I kind of go back to Nietzsche for lots of, lots of ideas. The thing I like about him a lot is the method, right, of genealogy, this mm. particular histories of ideas which you build up in order to... I don't know what the phrase would be, but to rail against them in, normally. Um, so I wonder if there's there's something interesting there because the the adolescents, the, the the group of teenagers in your book, they engage with the philosophy of Nietzsche through the character of Nietzsche in this very grand uh, but quite surface level way. And th there's an interesting kind of critique that plays out within the group about uh, how seriously those ideas of I don't know, of despair or of suicide or of nihilism are being taken. Yeah, genealogy in Nietzsche's work shakes up, shakes up our assurances about categories we, we normally regard to be sacrosanct. So ideas such as dignity or goodness or evil or, um, or what's worthwhile or not worthwhile, these are subject to great scrutiny in Nietzsche's work, and particularly in that, in that book called The Genealogy of, of Morality. In that work, what Nietzsche does is trace the origins of these terms and show how they began in very um, confused times, in, in, out, of, out of struggles, out of, uh, of uh, clashes between different groups of people. 
So what you're doing, you're, you're denaturalizing what you take to be natural, what you take to be eternal. You're, you're historicizing what you think is, um, you know, has always been the case. You're taking these, these words which form part of our morality and you are um, altering them in some way. Now, what I find in the adolescent, this is maybe my idealised adolescent, what an adolescent needs to do, and particularly perhaps a queer adolescent, is invent ancestors for her or himself. To invent a past, to conjure up from the past exemplars, people's, uh, people whose lives you can imitate, people whose lives give you a clue as to how you might live your own life. This is something I think is particularly acute for, for queer youth, people who don't have a, a pattern, don't have a paradigm, don't have a, um, around them someone to follow. They've got to discover for themselves how they might live. And this genealogical method is wonderful because it shakes our certainty that the world as we find it is the world as, as it actually could be. And this is what adolescents, I think, are particularly attuned to. Things could be different. Things don't have to be the way that they are. And to that extent, I think, the adolescent constructs a genealogy of her or his own, finding heroes, finding ancestors, where there's, where there's a lack of people around them to show them how they might live. I was just thinking about Nietzsche and the Burbs and then also Wittgenstein Jr. And what's, you've got a plan for another book in this series, right? Mm. What's the, the third, third book? The third book's called Simone, well, the working title is Simone Vey. I'm not sure if I'll keep that, that title. Okay. And it's a book in, in a similar vein to Nietzsche and the Burbs. You've asked me some questions about method, and interestingly enough, the question of method is absolutely central to Simone Weil. In that novel, it's about a bunch of PhD students in Manchester. In that novel, what these PhD students are trying to work out is a method to follow, both in their own PhD research, in the writing they're doing on various aspects of philosophy, but also in life in general. And one of the, one of the things they're subjected to is classes in method at their university. They go to the classes on method where they're told how to manage their time, how to balance their workload, how to structure their chapters, how to put together an argument. You know, actually for them, for my characters, they're being told how to live. And what they're trying to do in that novel is to struggle for another path, another way um, to, to, to do things, another way to live. Like all my characters, and this is similar with Wittgenstein Jr., Nietzsche and the Burbs, what all my characters are looking for is what we might understand as an ethics, or the ethical, or an ethos. Here this should be understood not simply in terms of rules, of norms, of, um, it's not, not a question here of morality. It's a question how you can dwell on the earth, how you can find a place where you can live, where you can find a place where you don't have to sacrifice that which you regard to be important. So what all my characters are looking for is perhaps, I don't, I don't know if I can call it this, but some kind of home, mm. some way of living, some way of living with other people in a collective. That's what all my characters are looking for. And in my novel, Simone Vey, or whatever it end up, ends up being called, I'm thinking of the title Disaster Studies for it, mm. and whatever, whatever the novel might be called, the characters are always looking for an ethos. Is there, is there a real course <laughs> called Disaster Studies? I, I made up this course, <laughs> and this course is a branch of philosophy. Ah, uh, okay, And okay. The, the, lead, the lead character in Simone Vey is called Donnie, and Donnie's very interested in the idea of the disaster, and that's what he talks about. Mm. There's an open question as to what the disaster might mean. Does it mean all the terrible things that happened in the 20th century? Does it mean the detonation of the, of the atom bomb? Or is it something we can track further back? Does the disaster begin with the invention of the steam engine? Or can we take it right back to the plantations, to the Middle Passage, to the wake of, the, of those slave ships crossing the Atlantic? So the question as to what the disaster might be is open in my, no in my, in my new novel. Of course, one of the things I'm thinking about in, in, in terms of the disaster is the, are the writings of Maurice Blanchot, and Blanchot wrote a book called The Writing of the Disaster. That's also in the back of my mind, it's, it's to 
um, to have my kind of reckoning with uh, Blanchot's thought in that book. Mm. So under under the, under these under the heading of the disaster, I want to group these various things together and see what happens. It's nice thinking about when you position a disaster, when you position the disaster, kind of realigns history and also the future. Mm. So it's, I wonder if the idea of adolescents or queer adolescents who are having to write their own histories also then helps them write a future as well. That's right. So your relationship to your past, the construction of a genealogy, um, selecting heroes, heroines, say in, in Nietzsche and the Verbs, Paula chooses, uh, what's her name, Nadja Tolokno, I think that might be it. Um, other characters choose um, Kurt Cobain, um, Arturo Rambo. So you're, you're picking people from the past who then might show you how to live in the present, how, how you might live in the future. If I think of the character Paula, she's an important character in the novel. What she's looking for is a, is a queer bohemia, a queer way of living in the city with other people like her. And she hasn't got that in Nietzsche and the Burbs. That's what she's looking for. She's sending up her distress flares, but they haven't actually um, summoned anybody yet. So Paul is someone who's looking forward to going off to university. She's actually going to study at Manchester, studying fine arts. And when she gets there, she wants to be able to construct this community, to build a community around her where she feels she can live, not just in a safe way, safe as this word, you know, I'm overused mm. at the moment. It's not about that. It's about trying to overcome herself in some way, to be more than, than who she is. That's what she's looking for in her queer bohemia. Hmm. I, was, I was reading... Have you ever read Lucy Ellman? Uh, I haven't, actually. No. I was reading her and reading about her, and she loves Thomas Bernhard, and Thomas oh, Bernhard great. is someone that I really love. Oh, wonderful. And, wonderful. That, and Bernhard is a, a great user of italics, mm. and Lucy Ellman is also a great user of italics, oh, and you were a brilliant wonderful. user of italics. Okay, great. And I wonder, <laughs> this is quite a strange question, but in relation to method, like, how do you feel about italics? Where did, did you mm. take that, did you take that from some, your reading of someone else, or did you, yeah, they're just such an interesting stylistic device, but I wondered what your thoughts on italics Yeah, Thomas Bernhard is the single greatest influence on my work. And I'm very much a post-Bernhardian writer. So Ber Bernhard is the absolute beginning of everything I do. Forget the novelists like, I mean, I've been compared recently to, to Martin Amis and Kingsley Amis and all these sorts oh, of right. people. They have no bearing whatsoever on, on my work. I never really read them, to be honest. <laughs> Bernhard is where it all begins from. And what Bernhard's work uh, means to me, it means so many things. One of the things it means to me is music, it's rhythm. It's um, Bernhard's brilliant rhythms, the rhythm mm. of his prose, which I find so intoxicating, so wonderful. And in my own work, what I'm also looking for is a kind of music, a rhythm. When I write, I get up early in the morning to write. So when I, when I, when I write, uh, everything's written, in, in, it, it, everything comes out of this rhythm. And as part of that rhythm, I want to put, I, I, want, I want emphases of various kinds. And the italics um, give me those emphases. So when a reader's reading it, they've got an idea of how it's supposed to sound, how it's supposed to, to flow. I also think here of rappers and, and rappers flow mm. and emphasis in, in, in rap music, in hip hop. And so emphasis for me is absolutely crucial. And that's the role the italics serve primarily is part of rhythm. And rhythm is very much part of this method which I follow. What I want every morning when I get up early to write is just to be carried away on that rhythm. Mm. And if you, my notebooks, I write in longhand. My notebooks are far more rhythmical than the actual work I produce. Because the work I produce, what I tend to do is to cut things up into dialogues. I, um, I break up this rhythm. But my, my, my work, as I, as I write it in the mornings, it looks much more like, you know, a version of Bernhard than what I publish. Mm. What's, your, what's your routine then? What's your writing routine? When you get up in the morning, what time are we talking? Well, at the moment, I'm getting up really, really early. I wake up about three. No I'm, way! I'm up at four. 
Wow. <laughs> this has been for the last six weeks or so. I can't help it. It means I'm very tired because I, go yeah. I don't go to bed early. So I'm actually very tired in general. And this is part of the whole promotion thing, doing, the, doing promotional tours yeah. and getting interviews and, and writing things for the paper in connection with Nietzsche and the Burbs. But rather than experiencing this as something difficult, when it comes to writing, it's been actually wonderfully liberating. And I've actually got a whole new routine. I mean, previously I get up at 5.30, that seems decadent to me now. <laughs> at four in the morning, I'm getting up, four in the morning, I come downstairs and I put on some music. I put on, um, in particular, you know, over the last six weeks, it's been John Coltrane. Uh, there's been a one, there's a wonderful box set release of his of his live recordings in Europe from 1962. I just put on a, a disc of that in the morning and I follow up with other things by Coltrane. And Coltrane has been just wonderful because again it's that rhythm, mm. that rhythm in his work, the way he's the way he's soloing. Um, I, I find his example incredibly inspiring. And I find the music very very exhilarating to listen to. But I'm in danger of getting burnt out. There's been too many early mornings yeah. lately. So this morning when I got up, what I didn't feel, it was um, the customary intensity of feeling. Mm. I want that intensity of feeling. And once you lose that, then the work I produce isn't of great interest. I want intensity. I want Coltrane-like intensity. I write for some of my artwork and I find that if I have that intensity of feeling, it gives me a great drive to work. But sometimes I have to write without having that intensity of feeling. And actually what's sobering for me is to look back on those different bits of work and realise that neither one is better than the other. It's just mm. the feeling I had was so much more exciting when I was feeling intense and driven to do the work. But you do find there is an actual difference in the yeah, output as well. Yeah, because it's, the, it's when you're um, writing a section, for example, in Nietzsche and the Burbs, the section which takes place in a pub. The pub's called The Ship. It's, it's actually in my hometown of Wokingham. And the section written to try and give an account of what it's like to go to go on boring evenings into the ship. I, I spent my entire adolescence doing that sort of thing. It's a very, very boring time. And in order to access that experience, I had to reach a kind of maximal intensity in my work. So over and over again, morning after morning after morning after morning, I, tried to, I drove myself into a frenzy of hatred and fury, which actually comes very easily to me. You know, I'm a very <laughs> calm, mild-mannered person, but um, superficially, I'm actually incredibly misanthropic and unreasonable inside. So um, I'm able to access, access this intensity with great, great ease. Tiny things irritate me beyond measure. I would never think of showing this in my ordinary life. I don't think anyone could guess my irritations and how irritated I guess. I get, but writing is something I can draw on these irritations. Uh, just a, a chance encounter with someone, the way someone says hello to me, and the tiny things. I would never show this in ordinary life, but I can access that anger and fury in my work. It's very easy for me to get into that anger and fury, and it's a wonderful gift. Uh, and what that does, it unifies what I'm writing. So when I was writing that material on the ship, I had to enter that state many times, and I wrote, I don't know how, how many words, and um, what I tend to do in my, in my novels is edit down something much, much, much longer. Nietzsche and the Burbs is about 100,000 words long. What I wrote for Nietzsche and the Burbs is about 1.3 million words, 1.4 million, something like that. I just edit and edit and edit and cut right, and so cut and cut. You wrote around 1.3 million words? Yeah, something wow. like that. Yeah, wow. so Nietzsche and the Burbs, it's, it, it, you know, every single section is much, much, much longer than appears on the page. And what I'm trying to do in editing is get a crispness and a succinctness. There's no, there's no need for me to try to do what someone like Thomas Bernhard does and write these wonderful, wonderful monologues. In fact, I, I don't, I'm always a bit disappointed in my monologues. They're, they're not quite structured enough. I always dream of writing these monologues, but I can't quite carry it off. So what I try to do in my work is to be very, very precise and very controlled. 
So even though I can access all this fury and anger very easily, um, my editing skills are incredibly important here. I have to cut, cut, cut. A novel like Wittgenstein Jr. was the beginning of this for me. The first three novels I wrote weren't written in that way. But Wittgenstein Jr., um, I wrote it, I wrote it and, and submitted it at about twice the length that it, um, it is now. And, you know, my, my, my partner, um, my wife, is a fantastic editor. She just cut every scene in half. Cut, cut, cut. And it's a great lesson. I think um, so many see, um, scenes in fiction are cliched. They're boring. We, we've seen them before in a thousand soap operas and on, you know, on, on evening TV. So for me, it's cutting as much as you possibly can to get to the essential drama. So something like Nietzsche and the Burbs, they're just an immense amount written. And it's always a question for me of cutting, 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 getting down to the essential drama. If I didn't do that, I'd be like, I'd be a, a Bernhard imitator. Yeah. And that's what I don't want to be. But there's something super interesting about the, one of the things I love about your writing generally, and in particular it works well in this book, is that so much of what happens on the page is not what's literally happening in the room. It's about thoughts about what might have happened or what isn't happening. or It's, mm. it's about, and adolescence is a brilliant space for this because there's a lot of boredom, a lot of speculation, a lot of big talk, not mm. as much action. And that kind of makes a lot of sense for the way that you write. So how do you know what's Yeah, essential? selecting what, what's important for a scene is very difficult. There's one scene where, um, I think I might read it tonight, I'm doing a reading tonight in, in Hackney, and it's where the characters are waiting for the, the new lead singer of their band, which is Nietzsche himself, one of, their, one of their classmates. The characters are waiting for their new lead singer to come along and begin singing for the first time. And it's all about what the characters do, just hanging out. So one of the things they do is they, they lark about, they, they run up to one of the characters' um, parents' um, bedroom, and they go, around, they go through the drawers looking for the sex toys. Then they start drinking. Then, they look, then they're discussing porn they looked at when they were younger. Then they, they talk about madness. And each of those sections is, is, was part of something much larger that I just spliced together. I cut and then spliced into a series of, um, of, of prose bits and I, I combined it in, in, into one piece. So that's what I'm doing a lot of the time, is just taking um, all, things from all over the place and then putting them together to construct a scene. Likewise with the ship, what I was doing there is just trying to think of a through line of imagery I had all kinds of wild and crazy things um, in the original um, in the original work I wrote, I wrote when I was describing the ship, but it's too diffuse. You, you need a simple through line of imagery, and once you find that through line of imagery, you can discard so much and just concentrate on that. It's really propulsive those sections that mm. really kind of pull you through. Yeah, these iterate these multiple iterations of an idea, which is kind of jazz-like, isn't it? These it ideas is. of like varying, varying mm. on a theme. Absolutely, it's like modal jazz. In modal yeah. jazz, you improvise over, you know, a couple of chords or maybe a chord. You know, someone like John Coltrane can spend a whole side of an LP improvising over, I don't know, a couple of chords, a chord. And the thing is to find something which will, will allow you to improvise, to find some some riff that you, that can then form the basis of your improvisation. So that's the question for me: is finding something which will which will give me that ability to open this out and, and make it kind of wild. And then to control that wildness and give it a kind of succinctness to cut it off uh, when it's got when it's got to a certain point. So if you write longhand, you then do some editing as you're typing it up, or when does that editing process? Well, what happen? I do with with um, editing, I, I just I just write a bunch of stuff in in the notebooks, um, and I when I'm feeling totally dead at work, you know, I'm just really tired. I do lots of admin and management stuff and filling out Excel spreadsheets. I will put on some DVD. Um, put on some. I buy these DVDs in charity shops. Put one of those on, and I type up four thousand words, 
And that's how I do it, you know, just every few days I'll type up 4,000 words, or if I'm feeling particularly dead, 8,000 words. It's something I do when I've got nothing else going on. And then I've got um, a, a Word file full of material. For the, new, for the new novel I'm working on, I must have 800,000 words by now. Wow. And a lot of that is it's all quite carefully ordered. It's all sorted and grouped and processed. And then once I, I get a chance to actually begin this novel, it's been quite frustrating lately because I haven't had a chance to begin. Once I get a chance to begin this novel, what I'm going to do is, is just move things around, assemble scenes out of this material. I've got so much material, hopefully that shouldn't be something which is too difficult. Mm. I can pull together all kinds of stuff and assemble a scene out of various disparate things that I've written. And where's, this, where's the next novel going to be set? It's yeah. set in Manchester. Yeah, Manchester. So it's set in Manchester um, and it's my favourite setting I've ever written. A lot of it takes place on what's called the E's. And the E's spell E-E-S. It's a real place, it's in Chalton, which is in the suburbs oh, of Manchester. Yeah. And it's, it's just an open place with a big lake in the middle. But in the novel, it's become something pretty wild. It's similar to what damp um, becomes in Spurious. Yeah. But this is much more so. So I'm pretty damn excited to get working on, on, on this stuff because the East is, I find it quite an intoxicating place to write about. So the East is just this, this sort of post-industrial, in the novel, a post-industrial landscape in which you'll find a sofa sitting in the middle of everything. You'll find some, some, some stuff there that's been dumped, you know, fly-tipped, um, all kinds of crap. You'll find some um, sort of old buildings that the characters can wander into, and what I'm doing when I'm when I'm writing about the about the East, I'm drawing on um, Tarkovsky's work, the filmmaker Tarkovsky, and in particular Stalker. And the idea is for my characters at the heart of the East, there's the room. They don't know where the room is. They're not sure um, how to find it. But the room will be that place where they get their secret wishes. Whatever wish they have is going to be is going to be is going to come true. Now in the novel, you know, I'm playing this. Um, for laughs in many ways, and it's clear the characters don't take this entirely seriously. But what the East is allowing me to do, and what the, what the room is allowing me to do, is really bring these characters close to what they ultimately want, what they ultimately desire, and they can sit around talking about this. So the East is, is just my absolute favourite place that I've ever, I've ever written about. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just really excited, I can't wait to get going on the novel. But the problem is, for various reasons, various other things are coming up, it won't be until after Easter that I can mm. get going on it, really. Is that, because you studied in Manchester, right? That's right. So is the, is the East there. a place that you actually know from your time there? Yeah, I know really there. well. Yeah, sure. What, so, was, what is it really like? What's just, the... it's, it's a pleasant, pleasant leisure oh. area. <laughs> That's good. It's a nice lake. You, you yeah. walk around there. People walk their dogs around there. You know, it's very <laughs> nice. And um, it's interesting because there's other bits of it, sort of meadows. I'm never sure what they're called, whether they're part of part of the east or not. And in those meadows, you know, you'll see um, bits of old buildings. There's the River Mersey runs through it. You you can get quite lost in some of the woods there. You know, they're quite small. And uh, I always love going there. Manchester's very built up, mm. and it's one of the few places you can go out and have a taste of the countryside. And there's a lot of people I knew who were unemployed, alcoholics, all, all kinds of things like this. And we'd often go for a wander in the middle of the day. We'd wander through the east and talk about stuff. And that's what I was trying to remember. In fact, the novel, um, Simone Vey, is all about a friend of mine who died a couple of years ago. He died young. And he's an alcoholic, lifelong alcoholic, great friend of mine. And we spent a lot of time together. And he would, he would live periodically when he was vaguely sober. In, in, in my house, so he had one of the rooms in my in my house. I lived, I lived in a really wild place, and um, you know he died. And I was trying to think about our friendship and all the stuff we did together, and all that time we passed doing nothing in particular, mm. wandering through the east. He had a great knowledge of nature. He knew all about nature. He studied nature, 
and um, he can tell you all about the trees and the birds and the animals, all, all kinds of things. So it's really a novel remembering my friendship with, with him, you know, just as my first three novels are all about friendship with a, with a guy called Will. Um, this novel I'm writing is all about my friendship with Rob and uh, my sadness that he died young. You know, it's a terrible, terribly sad life he had. How old was he when he died? 50, I think. Wow. Yeah, and he was someone who was quite vibrant. He came to visit me in Newcastle um, before he died and he was, he was doing okay. And yeah, it's a very, very sad thing. And uh, what can I say? I mean, a, a whole world disappears when someone dies. Mm. And it's all this banter and the fun that we had. We lived in this crazy house full of monks. So for, for after a few adventures in Manchester, I ended up living in this in this house where, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how you, how you can present it. It's like an ark that's the, the, <laughs> that helped people drowning in life. And I was one of those drowners. I moved in, I lived there for seven years. Wow. And all kinds of people lived there from all walks of life, all kinds of people. The guy who owned the house was a very charitable, very kind man, a very religious man, a very devout Christian. Not in, a, not, not in an oppressive way, not in, a, in, a, in trying to convert you sort of way. But I was very impressed with his Christianity and what his Christianity meant in terms of his real commitment to people around him. And a lot of us ended up living there and from all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, and, and we, we got on really well and uh, we hung out a lot and we, we had a lot of fun there, really. And at the same time, it, it, it's full of monks and full of choirs and, you know, it's, it's one of the most amazing places to live. I try to write about it, I try to write about it directly, but actually it just sounds so implausible. But curiously <laughs> enough, one of the people who lived in the early incarnation of that house was Howard Devoto of Buzzcocks. Oh, no Strange, way. but true, yeah. And he is writing a book about it, or at least he was when I last saw him. Wow. So he lived in, in a version of this house, not in that house, but in an earlier house, but you know, the same sort of feel. And he was right. He was. He came up to to visit us in Manchester as part of his research for the, for this um, for this biography autobiography he's writing. So it may well appear. You know, it may well come in, come into print that house. I find it very hard to write about about it. But I'm trying to in the new novel. You're from Wokingham originally. That's you right. Grew up there. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's like a, a kind of real place that you're mining for fictional capacity. Mm. And mm. then yeah, Manchester, I guess, is the same. Was it? I guess mm. there's not, none of that in Wittgenstein Jr. though. Because Wittgenstein Jr. I, I, I thought, okay, what I'll do after writing my first three novels, which are auto-fictional, and they're all about you know my friendship with you know with, with a guy called Will and our adventures in the world of academia, and you know those three those three novels, at least the first one was written as these events actually unfolded. I never had a, you know I never intended them to be a novel at all. Never even thought about it actually, and then eventually you know I decided well this material would make a novel. Um, after writing those three novels, I wrote Wittgenstein Jr. I thought, I'll set it somewhere I've never been. I'll, set it, I'll, I'll write it about a philosopher whose work I don't really feel very connected to. Oh, really? I write, I write about people um, who, you know, I'm just not like those people at all. I thought I'd just do that just for kind of fun. So I used Google Maps to, to look through Reading. And, you know, I read loads of books about Eton and other things to get my characters. So it was, it was, a, it was kind of holiday from what I normally wrote about. And it's kind of funny because people will tell me that I got the geography of Cambridge completely wrong. <laughs> but I, I find that quite entertaining, you know. That I put a college there, there's no college there. And it's kind of fun because the publishers took me to Cambridge as part of a book tour just to show me it. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one, one of the people who worked at the publishers, she'd been at Cambridge, so she took me there and gave me a tour of the place, which I really enjoyed. But it didn't resemble <laughs> Cambridge in my imagination whatsoever. <laughs> oh, it's interesting you say that you, that you don't really connect with Wittgenstein's no, philosophy. No, I, I remade it in my own image. Ah, OK. So I studied Wittgenstein as an undergraduate. And as an undergraduate, I loved it in the context of what I studied at that time. I studied analytic philosophy, which can be quite dry and arid. And I love Wittgenstein's work in that context. Ah, OK. But then as a, as a postgraduate, I moved into continental philosophy and I drifted very, very far away from Wittgenstein. 
So in writing that novel, I was really trying to revive my early enthusiasm for, for Wittgenstein, but I found it quite hard to do, just in, not, not because of Wittgenstein himself as a philosopher, just because it didn't really fit in with what my, my interest, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of him. So what I did, I read Wittgenstein through the work of other thinkers, uh, Pierre Adeau, uh, the great French um, classicist, mm. who wrote a book called Philosophy of Spiritual Life. It's a wonderful book. And this book is all about um, attempting to revive a tradition in Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, where a philosopher is tested not by their work, but by how they live. Mm. And Pierre Adeau actually has an article on Wittgenstein as someone who attempted to live um, his thought. And that, I thought, was a very interesting way into Wittgenstein's world for me. The other thing I did was to, uh, and this is one of these big influences on my work, um, was to just read um, Agamben, Agamben's work in general, which I always find very intoxicating. And in particular, in particular, the book on Paul. So when I was thinking about Wittgenstein, I, I was thinking about Paul in um, the book on Paul. And I, I tried to remake Wittgenstein in that image as well. So what I was doing with Wittgenstein was turning him into someone who I could have some sort of handle on. I was also reading extensively in Wittgenstein's work. You know, I was trying to read his work, reread it, rethink it, recast it in a way which I might recognise and be able to work with. So the Wittgenstein I come up with, I'm not sure how strongly he resembles historical Wittgenstein, but he's someone who I was able to, I was able to work with him. I was able to feel with him. Um, and you know, that, that novel for me, it was always a love story from the very beginning. I wrote the end of it first, you know, the, the, end, the end part of the novel is the stuff I wrote first, the love affair stuff. And Wittgenstein, that whole novel was for me about making my, my readers feel something really acutely. I wanted to make the readers feel very, very acutely the love that Wittgenstein ne needs, the love that he finds, and what it meant that he had, to, he had to leave this love behind. Have you ever read any biographies of Wittgenstein or any of Yeah, certainly. So the Great Monk biography, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. Um, the late Brian McGuinness, he only died a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful biography oh, yeah. of the young Wittgenstein. Yeah. And after he wrote that, I was waiting and waiting for the second volume, which was rumoured to appear. It never appeared. I love the, 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 his volume on the, on the young Wittgenstein, which I read when it first, was first published in the 90s. And then, of course, there's all the other stuff. There's a, a huge collection of um, memories of Wittgenstein by people who knew him. I've heard you mention this before. Yeah, huge. Uh, yeah I haven't read mm. that, but that, that sounds amazing. It's wonderful. By Flowers. Flowers was the original editor. It's been re-edited. It's actually been enlarged in the last couple of years. I haven't seen the new version. It's by someone actually based in Newcastle. I forget his name. And he brought out an even longer um, book, um, Reminiscences of Wittgenstein. But there are other books you can draw on as well. Rush Reese has an edited collection. And in that, there's the, the, the reminiscences of, um, I only know his surname, Drury. Was it Maurice Drury? And Drury was a friend of Wittgenstein's. And I actually borrowed the format of the dialogue of Wittgenstein from Drury. Ah. And many of the speech patterns, and many, many the, actually many of the incidents uh, are borrowed from that. Also several wonderful memoirs of Wittgenstein. Um, von Wright, who was a Finnish um, philosopher, he's got a brilliant little book about working with Wittgenstein. And there are actually many others. So I, I, I read everything I possibly could. You know, when I'm writing these novels, I read an awful lot of books. I found I read all kinds of things by Wittgenstein on Wittgenstein on Wittgenstein's life, and it's very similar with Nietzsche as well. Because he, because Wittgenstein and Nietzsche they struck me as the most obvious candidates for a comic novel. Mm. They're they're both pathetic, not in a pejorative way, but in a in a way mm. that makes you kind of um, feel a lot for them. Like they're, mm. they're both kind of failed over and over again to they tried and mm. as you say they kind of tried to live their philosophy but they failed over and over again like they're 
the stories about Wittgenstein whenever he was it Norway he used to go back that's to right, again. That's right. And him yeah. trying to feed the birds but the birds dying or oh this really <laughs> sure. kind of sad stories. Yeah. Yeah. And and Nietzsche of course like the, mm. the 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 great irony of his life of him ending his life in a kind of mm. a comatose after having a breakdown. I don't know Simone Simone Vai at all. Oh, Simone Vai is it? Simone Vai, sorry. Extraordinary life. Oh my god. You know the biography there's a wonderful biography of her. Uh, I forget what I forget. It's written by a friend of hers, and the name escapes me for some reason. And it is so utterly moving. And her notebooks, which she wrote just before she died, she died at thirty-four, so young. Oh, wow. Her notebooks, the last notebooks, and they, they're to be distinguished from the other notebooks, which aren't as good. But the last notebooks, are, I find them unbearable to read. They're so profound, so rich, so wide-ranging, and they are they're on so many different topics. Um, so, so, so they show her brilliance off so, so wonderfully. Uh, I find them almost unbearable to read. I, I really find it very, very hard to read her, um, for me, her, her favourite work. And Simone Vey died at 34. She, she starved to death. Wow. She, uh, you know, she starved herself to death. She refused to eat more than, I think it was uh, prisoners in, in the work camps. Hmm. She refused, or I think it was the work camps, anyway. Uh, or maybe prisoner of war camps, I think that was it. She refused to eat any more than they did. And it exacerbated an already, um, a condition she already had. I think it was tuberculosis. And she died of um, she died of it at the age of thirty four in Ashford in Kent of all places. She, she was in Middlesex Hospital and moved to Ashford, and it's the most um, extraordinary life. I'm not sure whether these thinkers can be regarded solely tragically. There's something about the glory of their thought, mm. something so wonderful about their thought, and the feeling I have is that it, they could only have thought it given the lives that they led, and that 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 thought is so wonderful. So there's a kind of reversal there that uh, the way I phrased it was as though they'd failed to live mm. their philosophy but what you're saying is possibly the philosophy could only have come from that mm. understanding they gained or the wisdom they gained through their absolutely living. and there are many philosophers like this I mean Deleuze was very ill for most of his adult life Maurice Blanchot was extremely ill from his adolescence onwards he lived to a great age but he was very very unwell I read accounts of him now that are emerging and this guy was um, lying around lying in bed all day I mean mm. these, these people are really unwell but that um, that failure of health as Deleuze writes in, in his work that failure of health can be a condition for writing. It's what, it's what can allow you to write. I've been re reading a lot about, I um, can't remember whose idea it is, but biomorality. Have you heard of this phrase before? I haven't, no. It's a kind of neoliberal injunction or oh, collapse yeah, of like yeah. morality and health. So mm. No, if, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so the idea mm. that you... It's wellness, it's self-care, yeah. it's... I can't remember what you have in Nietzsche and the Burbs, but they have a happiness class or something like that. They do like indeed, that. and this, this is exactly the kind of thing I was striking against. Yeah, I, I found that in the work of Alain Kazupancic. That's it, that's yeah. who coined the term biomorality. That's, that's right, it. I remember yeah. reading one of, her, one of her books, and I thought it was fantastic as a term. And the idea that it is, it's your moral duty to actually be well, and if you're not well, it's a moral failing. <laughs> And these are, these are revolting doctrines. These are appalling doctrines. And they're everywhere all about us. For me, some of the great, terrible moments of the last 20 years, the end of people being able to smoke in, in public mm. places. A university campus that bans people smoking. Can you not um, smoke on university campuses now? Many of them you can't. Certainly wow. now ones you can't. I mean, it's a campus. It's open air. Why can't people smoke there? Mm. And uh, the attacks on drinking. This is why I write a lot about drinking in my work is because uh, the attacks on drinking are absolutely extraordinary. In general discourse, um, intoxication of all kinds is something frowned upon, and I find that absolutely appalling. We have a Puritan culture when it comes to intoxication. People no longer drink at lunchtime. Um, you know, 
I'm half Danish, and in Denmark you drink in the winter, you, you have um, Gamladansk, you have a spirit in the morning to get you going at breakfast, you know, just to get you going in the cold weather. And you'll often have um, a drink at lunchtime, you go to Portugal, there are places in the streets, there are stands where you can have a, a spirit, a shot, uh, it's called Ginginia, I think in Lisbon, and you can just go there at lunchtime and have a shot of something or other, a shot of a spirit, wonderful. And the idea you can't do this, and it's frowned upon, and for me it's, it's just horrifying our sober, sober world. Even in England's drinking culture, it was it was puritanical even in even when it drinks, you know, like our mm. drinking culture is based around the build up to Friday night when you That's kind of true. release and then you mm. you purge for the week or you pay for your sins or whatever on the Monday morning. That's and, a, in your pain. Yeah. It's a very it's a, it's, you know, it's a very good point. Um European style drinking. I, I write about the Poles yeah. and their drinking experience. <laughs> yeah. The Poles we we were over there in Poland two thousand and one, a bunch of us. It's wonderful. We had a fantastic time over there. The Poles were amazingly hospitable. We should see them drink. They weren't like us. We were frenzied. We were going wild with our drinking. They just drank slowly through the whole night. 5 a.m., 6 of them, they're still drinking. This drinks of honey liqueur. Very nice, you know. And they'd be drinking that, and we'd all be, we'd all have fallen on the floor. We, we, we were in such a terrible state by that time. And that pacing, that calmness about um, drinking, that tranquility, it reflects the way in which drinking is part of a culture over there. Mm. And same with islands, but same with many of these countries. Whereas in Britain, yeah, we have, we have that fraught relationship to alcohol. We have the li we had the licensing laws, which meant you know the pubs close at a certain time. You'll get in as much as you possibly can within a short window of time. Mm. Appalling. I don't know. It's got its own. I just think it has its own like kind of peculiarity. <laughs> I was to Poland in 2013, and we were amazed at how cheap beer was. Mm. And you couldn't really buy someone a beer as an act of generosity because it was so cheap. You had to wow. buy the vodka. Yeah. But they also had these. Do you drink Polish lager? Yeah, there's a kind of range of Polish beers and like mm. the, the Zubra, I think, is very high percentage mm. lager. And we found it really cheaply at this place that we eventually found out everyone in town called the Bum Bar because it was where the homeless people <laughs> and the street drinkers right. went. And there we were, these artists on residence, drinking <laughs> with the homeless. It was really nice. Wonderful. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a really nice culture. Well, in Poland, what I remember particularly is travelling across from Warsaw to Wrocław where we were... We were doing out. We had a conference there, and on the train you sit in these tables, and people would bring you beer. You sit there, you order beer. What a fantastic way to pass the time, you know. This is these are the arts of conviviality. Mm. My worry is the the arts of conviviality are being lost. They're being trampled out. The conviviality of the working class is being deliberately destroyed, in my view. Mm. And the conviviality of the middle class is being eaten away at. You read Daily Mail, The Guardian. It's all about the problems of drinking too much. If you have one glass of wine a day, this is what it will do to you. Mm. I find this Puritanism absolutely repugnant. Okay, I think it's just, I think that biomorality really captures it. This the way that as soon as that idea is present in the culture, things that previously were unimaginably separate from capitalism, like mm. sleep, sleep, sleep health and mm. uh, clean sleeping, this idea of cleanliness, this idea of purity, entering even ideas of unconscious, like being being yes, unconscious, right. it's just yeah. like, becomes a, a, a moral act. It's crazy. You're working, just Jonathan Crary, isn't it, in 24-7. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Work in your sleep. It's a wonderful book, actually. So certainly, yeah, absolutely. There's biomorality. Um, this is all about management. You know, politics itself has become a matter of management and administration. The big political ideas seem to have fallen away. The way in which what Foucault might call governmentality functions is through management at every level. Management not, not solely through um, official state uh, institutions, but other institutions as well. So everything's about management. And even now, the um, the 
whole discussion of climate change in the media is about the management of, of climate change and techno fixes and what you might do to solve this issue as if it was an issue that could simply be solved. So everything's about this, this solution talk, this management talk, and this is something which works at the level of our elected bodies, but also, you know, in our ordinary everyday lives. This is governmentality saturating everything with management, with self-management. And I find this absolutely abhorrent. I wanted to ask you that uh, Richard Branson, Richard Branson oh, yes. crops up loads in the <laughs> book as a kind of a comic figure of capital, I guess. Yeah. What? But I don't know why Richard Branson has always made me laugh as a figure. But I don't know why is he so comic. What's so funny about Richard Branson? I guess Richard Branson is just so over eager. Yeah, he's an eager guy, and he, he's got this very positive business philosophy. And the idea for Richard Branson is, you know, he wants to make us all entrepreneurs, and that he presents himself as someone who's like us in some way. Mm. So for him, the solution to all life's problems is entrepreneurship. And what I love is the way in which, um, and this is all from Hello Magazine. I, I, I used to buy it every week as research. <laughs> and in Hello Magazine, um, there's a whole story of Richard Branson's son, who's called Sam. Sam's marriage to Isabella something or other, Cal Thorpe. I don't know, she's got three different surnames. And she's one of, from one of these ancient families. I loved all this idea of the entrepreneur and his family getting in with the royal family. Yeah. And there you have this uh, our near feudalism, where the big entrepreneurs link up with the old established powers and they constitute this, this new layer of, of horror in our society. Mm. Um, and I think with Branson, yeah, you get, you get the sense in which he, he feels he's some kind of exemplar um, for us. But it's also the way in which Branson is used. When I was at school, we actually did have young enterprise class. Oh, yeah. And we actually did watch um, videos, as they were then, video cassettes of the lives of, of amazing business people. So this was actually something really quite real. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this, 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 we actually went through this stuff when I was at school. <laughs> and people we were supposed to imitate. I can't remember who said this, but there's entrepreneurs who've come from fairly humble beginnings. Mm. They're such outliers. Everything about their careers is mm. completely unique to them. And they're also the people who are least able to analyse that correctly because they're the ones experiencing it. Mm. So even in business terms, I think they're generally felt to be the only people you shouldn't listen to because they can't give you any real advice mm. on how business really works or on how they got to where they did because mm. the whole their whole career is proof of the fact that that's not how the world works, right? Like Branson, mm. Branson's kind of a, what's the word, countercultural beginnings yeah. or whatever, being involved in the music industry, a completely different to his situation now of like making money out of the failure of privatised mm. rail companies over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. So these people, someone like Branson comes from the counterculture and he was lucky when he was young. He, a few strokes of luck, tubular bells, that, that recording by oh, yeah. Mike Oldfield made them a great deal of money, made Virgin a lot of money. And he could do a great deal with that, with that money. Um, so what these people, what the entrepreneurs tend to forget is that opportunity they had, often countercultural, often funded by governments, you know, if, if it's in the area of tech, that is not something generally available today. These spaces are closing down. And in general, if we compare the 70s and 80s to now, the 70s and 80s were much more random and, and chaotic and, and unmanaged. Um, there was still, a, a, still this lively counterculture, countercultural forces were still in play. So things could actually happen then. You had, you had dole culture, you had squat culture. And that, these, these things are dying, they're, they're shrinking. And when, when you don't have that kind of, um, that, those opportunities for, for living without earning a regular salary, then you close down all kinds of creativity. Mm. The same creativity in which the tech giants, on which people like Richard Branson depend. 
used to be an academic philosopher, philosopher mm. at Newcastle University. Yeah. yeah. But you switched. When did you switch to becoming a reader in creative writing? Well, about five years ago. So uh, I, was, I, was in, I was in philosophy for many, many years. But institutionally, it was incredibly frustrating. You know, a lot of a lot of um, what I was doing as a, as academic philosopher was was management and administration, and trying to struggle to keep philosophy open, to keep philosophy going. Uh, we were actually restructured in about 2004, and philosophy was moved, would you believe it, into chemical engineering, no into way. the School of Chemical Engineering. And these sorts of decisions make it very hard to practice any kind of philosophy. Um, this, 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 this kind of absurdity, I'll write about it one day, uh, this kind of absurdity was the background for my writing Spurious, Dogma, and Exodus, my first three novels. Day-to-day -day absurdity was so great that I just turned to writing as a way to, to, to keep myself sane in the, in the middle of the madness. And then, you know, I've moved now to a, 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 a department of creative writing and people are, my colleagues are fantastic, we're treated very well, all is easy and, and, and straightforward. My colleagues in philosophy, I should say now, as soon as I left, they were moved in the humanities. So, you know, there we are. As soon as I left, almost immediately. It was your presence that is my presence. dragged them into chemistry. But, you know, I was battling against senior management um, constantly. Uh, these are these were very, very stressful and difficult things. I used to wake at two in the morning mm. just from sheer stress before meetings and preparing and preparing for these meetings. You know, this was, this was it. And Spurious and the other ones were written in the midst of that in the midst of that, um, in, of that situation. So they, they come out of that experience. Doesn't W become, he has to say, kind of position as a philosopher of physiotherapy or something? Well, what, again... Is it sports science or now, something? There's legal reasons here, but I can't talk about this. OK. Uh, but where he worked, there were some interesting things that happened. And I, I, I say, I'll, I'll leave it to your listeners to infer um, the veracity of what I reported in, in the fiction. But... Um, yeah, you could not write about these things. You would not be believed, the things mm. that occur in universities. I remember when I was at art college, they were constantly trying to shut the art department down. Mm. And we would get people coming around the studios checking that we were using them because it was felt to be unused space and un mm. uncommodified. But but then the, I think the chancellor changed and they realised there was actually quite a lot of money. I think the shift... It shifted over at that point to research and they realised they could make a lot of money out of doing PhDs and MAs in art. Sure. Suddenly loads of yeah. money went into the mm. into the art department. And it's and it's so strange that in this managerial culture, the whims of the managers matter so much. You'd mm. think it would be much more impersonal, but actually sometimes it's the kind of personality of the person who's meant to be a neutral technocrat. Yeah, it's a feudal system. Yeah. These yeah, are our yeah. lords and ladies, these are our masters. And we, we, we their whims are things we... You know, we, we watch out for. We we hope that things will things will go well for us. Maybe they won't. Maybe they will. It's like the rise of the royal. Like the royals never really bothered me, but in the past few years, they've been so closely tied to exactly what we're talking about. This kind mm. of new feudalism or new medievalism, where mm. they've become like the what celebrities were in the early two thousands. They've mm, become absolutely. the most important things to people, but also allied to weird political moments as well mm. do you still read celebrity magazines do you still well i gave them up last last year must <laughs> <laughs> have been about december <laughs> why did you give them up well they're kind of boring yeah 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 <laughs> you know they, they became it's like that new movement of kindness which was kind of you know this this idea of hello magazine was having or promoting kindness oh. <laughs> and it became even more banal than, than it was previously yeah you have to have some cruelty in there otherwise yeah, it's, it's the, not really worth there's always some sort of implied cruelty but i, I keep up celebrity <laughs> gossip 
I think these things are very important to read, to read these, to read trash, to read tabloids, to read you know, trashy magazines. I think it's really crucial to keep on top of this stuff because <laughs> so much is happening of interest in these, in these magazines. And I, I draw from that in the fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time I'm drawing on what I read in Hello Magazine in the fiction. I was just wondering because whenever you begin to, I'm thinking of what, what I do as well when I, I, I tend to take things from life. Mm. And whenever you take from life, you somehow make, you somehow take a bit of your life that was previously free and kind of, I'm thinking of like wandering around mm. and chatting with friends or kicking, you know, shooting the shit and not doing anything mm. and you turn it into work. I wonder if like, is there any bit of your, because now you're going back through your own history and sure. you're using your knowledge of philosophy mm. and you're, yeah, you're using your knowledge of your adolescence and stuff. Is there any bit of your life that is left for, I don't know, just kicking about do you still go on long walks do you still do these things that oh, I, kind I, of... I do a lot of walking around and I spend a lot of time doing nothing in particular but the, the fiction that I write each from the birds none of the characters resemble anyone I've, I've ever actually met mm, you know, okay. they're, they're all made up and the, the new novel the characters are all made up it's actually really hard to write from life because it's unbelievable the things that happen are unbelievable um, you, I can't give an account of that house I lived in in Manchester yeah. it just, it's just too crazy uh, it's just too odd and no one would believe it the things that happen there yeah, there's no through line sometimes with the life, is there? No there's nothing. Narrative. And likewise, the life I led in, something like Newcastle, all the chemical engineering years, you couldn't write about it. No one, no one believe it. It's just too odd. There's no points of orientation. There's a wonderful autobiography by the jazz musician Art Pepper. And Art Pepper's biography is re autobiography is really, really a wonderful read until he enters into some weird commune for about 200 pages. <laughs> and in those, in, in those 200 pages, I, I, I just got totally lost. and I don't know how to understand what's happening to Art Pepper. And it's similar when I write about things I've experienced to, um, that, that I've undergone. If I write about them literally, mm. you know, you lose, uh, you lose a reader. No reader's interested in this stuff. Mm. So what I do, I make up completely new characters. And each of the burbs, no one in that novel resembles anyone I've ever met. And likewise, Simone Weil novel, no one resembles anyone I've ever met. So I think um, in that sense, you know, a real life, as I, as I experienced it all those years ago, is untouched. Mm. It's untouched, really. The Spurious trilogy, yeah, it was autofiction. It was pulled mm, from moments yeah. below. Do you still note these things down? Um, not, they... not that much, really. Okay. So that was hanging out with my friend um, Will, and I think I must have started writing that in about two thousand and three, writing bits of it. And it was I had this blog. The blog itself was called Spurious, and it was a very serious project for me. It was totally anonymous, and I was just trying to write a massive textual object, which would explore. I don't know how. You know, it's hard even to explain. They'd explore um, philosophical things, artistic things, you have a visual component, musical components, written components. There's going to be some massive object on the internet that I'd simply launch off. I thought of myself as an outsider artist, and I, I, I was going to spend my whole life at it. And as part of this project, which I didn't tell anyone about, it's totally secret, as part of it, I wrote comic, a comic strip, and the comic strip was the W stuff. Mm. That was supposed to make people laugh. So at the blog, there's about a million words of the blog. Um, when I finished that project in about 2007, a million words are online. Um, the blog tended to be not very humorous. And the bits that everyone wrote to me about were the W bits. People really got, they really got a following. The other, bits, the other stuff which really got a following was almost giving an account of the damp in my flat, which was quite <laughs> real and spurious, a total real account. I had this damp taken over the flat. It was completely crazy. And all these people who were experts on damp would come around and say, it's this. And I'd get, I'd, we'd begin, trying, you know, I'd get workers in and we'd, we'd, they'd fix it for me. You know, the whole kitchen was replaced. Uh, the plaster was replaced in the living room. I, I had this party once to celebrate the end of the damp. 
And then in, in one tiny corner of the living room, a tiny speck of damp appeared. The next day, the size of a tennis ball. The day after that, it was like a basketball. And it spread and it filled the whole room. And this was brand new, um, newly plastered walls. And it went on for ages. And I, I found it quite entertaining as well as it being rather a pain. And the air was so damp, you know, the, you wouldn't believe it. it was, uh, and then, you know, the damp spread everywhere. It got even worse in the bedroom. You know, I pulled away a wardrobe and it was just thick with green damp. <laughs> the whole flat was just, and it's full of spores, these tiny snails. Um, it is pretty extraordinary. So these things are taken from, these things were taken from the blog. I'd write about that at the blog. And, uh, you know, people would um, write to me saying, How, how's the damp going and, and how's W? So over the years, it built up that, that readership. And eventually, you know, my life circumstances changed. I wasn't living on my own anymore. I didn't have that amount of time. So I really felt it was time to draw it to a close. Mm. And as part of that, um, I thought, right, this, this W stuff would make a nice novel. And uh, I, I put together Spurious. Um, oh, so you finished the... You fi we kind of finished yeah. up with the blog before you started putting together the novel. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. That must have been about, I don't know... The, I was writing the novel about 10 years ago. It must be 2008, 2009, some, somewhere around then. A publisher had written to me saying, in fact, several publishers wrote saying they were interested in publishing parts of the blog. And at the time, I, I, one of them wrote, I was actually thinking, OK, maybe, maybe I'll give that a go, you know? And uh, I, I took about 10% of the material from the blog, and the rest of it I, I, it was new material, mm. but in the, very much in the spirit of the stuff from the blog. And that's how... The spurious came together, you know, it, was, it came, came together in that way. I'd never had any ambition to write a novel, mm. and, uh, you know, when I was writing the blog. The blog was was, was the actual thing I was doing. I, I, I didn't want to be one of these people who thought publication was the be-all and end-all. The blog itself was a thing. Yeah. And even now, because what happened was the blog became, you know, it was de-anonymized because, because, because of the success of Spurious and the other novels. Um, it was de-anonymized, you know, I, was, I put links there now to interviews and so on. And people, I still beat people quite randomly, really, and they'll tell me about the blog and, and about reading the blog. And it's wonderful to, to talk to people about it. It meant something. There was a kind of utopian aspect to blogging at that point. I really, I did, I, I did various blogs around that time. And yeah, it was it's that feeling that people, you could just be totally anonymous. And, mm. and now, every, again, it's like capital has kind of chased down these spaces. And, and now it's a, probably a way of, I don't know, showcasing your potential for yeah, sure. for being, writing a book or for Absolutely. being a screenwriter or something. There should be there be a great study written by someone or other one day of the blog era from 2003 to about 2010, because yeah, so much stuff came out of that. K Punk, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone like Owen Hathaway, yeah, um, yeah. There's a whole bunch of people. It came out of that um, movement and the way in which publication was possible. Uh, there's also amazing disappeared blogs like Young Hegelian, Anti Graham. These wonderful smaller blogs that you know I never really found out who wrote them. That they they came and they went and they were so fantastic. Mm. So there's there's a real cultural history to be done of that moment, which was an extraordinarily exciting moment. I owe everything as a writer to that period. If it, if it wasn't for that period, I never would have written anything. I never would have written the novels. Thanks so much to Lars for speaking to me. Make sure you follow the Bad Vibes Club wherever you get your podcasts and I will speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.